something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity in the one who created you, it'll change your whole perspective. Here's the deal. We are in week um, four of a series uh, called Identity Crisis, and we're looking at Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus in Asia Minor, um, the Ephesian church, and, and Ephesians is about book number 10, I think, into the New Testament. Last week, we opened up chapter 2, and we unpacked the what's and the why's and the how's in about the first 13 or so verses of chapter 2. And Paul, in the beginning of chapter 2, he is talking about what we once were, all of us. If you're a believer, at one point you were what he said at the beginning of chapter 2, and that is that you were dead in your sin. And we talked about what he did about the fact that we were all dead in our sin, and that is that he made us alive in Christ. And uh, we talked about why he did it, and, and the why he did it was because he loves us. Does he just love us? No, the text says he loves us. With great love, he loves us. And then we talked about the, uh, the hows. How did he do it? The big overarching picture is that, that the how is that he did it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then physically what he did is he shed his own blood on that cross to reconcile a, bless you, to reconcile, um, a, a relationship with him that had been wrecked and busted in the garden, and so those were the the hows and the whys and the whats from uh, from the beginning of of chapter two. Today we are going to begin digging in to the rest of chapter two, and you got to understand something. And we talked a little bit about this in in the beginning of week one of this series. But what you, you got to understand that the church in that area, in that area of Asia Minor, in in Ephesus, and really in Galatia too, um, you got to understand that that the church was made up. Of, of Gentile um, Christians and Jewish Christians, way predominantly Gentile Christians. I don't know what the percent, 95% of them probably in that area, they were Gentile Christians. Now, the Jewish Christians that were there believed, taught, said, preached, whatever, that the Gentiles had to become Jewish before they could become Christian. And now this word Christian really wasn't even used at that time, really, but they thought that you, they thought and they believed and they taught that you had to become Jewish first, and so, and really a Gentile is, is really just somebody that's not Jewish, that's all, that's all a Gentile is, and there was absolutely no love lost between the Gentile forever, no love lost between the Gentiles and the Jews, at, at best, 
the Jews looked down on the Gentiles, and at worst, there was uh, absurd, almost even hatred, bitterness, and hostility between, between the two. The Jews toward the Gentiles, Gentiles towards the Jews. Enormous hostility. And so let's look, start in verse 11. Verse 11, and we're gonna, there's a little overlap in what we did last week and this week because um, we kind of got through verse 13 last week, but we're going to back up a couple into verse 11, and, and here's what the text says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So look, the Jews were circumcised. The Gentiles were not circumcised. The Jews' covenant with God was marked by circumcision. That is where this, this language and that is where this idea comes from. Their identity, their identity comes from, came from, at least they thought, their identity came from the fact that they were circumcised. And Paul reminds us in a little bit of a subtle way in verse 11, middle of verse, or the end of verse 11, that, that all of that came from the hands of a human. The circumcision, the actual circumcision came from the hands of a human. It didn't come from the hand of God. A person did that. And, and in fact, this, this, this picture up here on the right is my oldest son, Zach, when he was 26. When he was 26, no. He's 26 now. It would have been a whole different occasion if he'd have been 26 when we did this. <laughs> Sorry. He's 26 now. This was on the eighth day uh, of his life. That's my dad over on the right. And that's a cup of wine kind of sitting in the front. But that was at, at Zach's circumcision. And it's called, in Hebrew, it's called a berit milah. That means a covenant of circumcision. And all, it's a big deal. Like, it's a really, really big deal. Big, huge celebration. And it's done. And if you think about it, every Jewish male, since about 1,800 years before Christ, on the eighth day of their life, that is what happened. It's a big deal. But it is a sign it is a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham uh, 1,800 years before Christ. It's a sign. It, they had twisted it over the course of 1,800 years. They had, it had grown into and they had, they had twisted it around. Like, and they wouldn't have used the language of salvation, but if, if, in our language, they thought and felt like that's what saved them, like that act of circumcision saved them. And you will run into people today um, that, that feel like, that may even believe, may even profess that baptism saves someone. You know, tell me your story. And their story begins, well, I was baptized. Well, okay, that water, I've said this every time we do a God plunge, that water didn't come from the Jordan River. It came from a faucet. There ain't nothing holy about that water. It is a sign. It is not, there's nothing salvific in it, right? It's a sign, just like circumcision was a, was a sign of that, covenant, not meaningless, but, but, a, but a sign of the covenant uh, between God and Abraham, ultimately between God and the Jewish people. So Paul continues on in verse 12, and remember, he's kind of talking uh, at this moment to Gentiles. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He's telling them, you weren't part of God's covenant people. You weren't part of Israel. He says, you were alienated and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's saying, you're not part of their deal. He's telling Gentiles, you ain't, you, you, you ain't part of their deal. You, 
You, you were without God because you are a Gentile. It's what Paul is saying. But here comes another, that but. That but word's coming up again in verse 13. He says to them, you're not part of the club yet. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's the Gentiles, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The you is the Gentiles. They were far off. They were Gentiles. They were not part of the covenant community. And I'm going to guess that most of you sitting here today, most of you probably um, are a Gentile. Now, you may be a Gentile Christian, meaning that you don't have, you don't come from Jewish descent, but you are a believer in Christ, or you're just a Gentile, period, meaning you don't have any, any you're not of Jewish descent, and you have not said yes to, to the Lord's offer of salvation yet, at the moment. That's okay. It's okay. Just hang with me for a second. Paul is saying to them, you are outside of the walls. If that's the wall, you're on the other side. You're not on this side. You're on the, you, you, for years and years, he's telling them, the Gentiles, you are way over there on that side of the wall. In fact, y'all, I want to show you something. On the screen, you're going to see an image of the temple complex in, in, I hope y'all like my scribbling. What I kind of have done is the stuff I write all up in my Bible, I'm kind of transferring that there. But that's the temple complex that, is on, that was on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You know what sits on top of the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem? Anybody know? A mosque. You think God's real thrilled with that? No, he's not. So that temple, that, that temple complex was there to give you perspective. The short walls on the sides are about three football fields long. So this is a massive complex. The actual temple is in the middle, uh, that middle part. And so um, around the temple part in the middle is stairs. It's probably hard to see, but there's steps going up to it, and then, and then there's a wall. And that wall that goes around that middle part separates the outs, all that outer big open part where I've got two little red clumps, whatever there. That is called the court of the Gentiles. That's the only place that the Gentiles could go. That was their area. They couldn't go up the steps and into one of the gates into the actual temple in the, in the middle. There was a sign that was there that said anyone who wasn't a Jew uh, that dared venture into that inner area, they did that under the threat of death. In fact, in 1871, archaeologists dug up digging around the, the Temple Mount area and y'all do know that just about every single archaeological find that has ever been made supports, verifies what this book says. Doesn't uh, work against it. So 1871, these archaeologists around the Temple Mount, they, <clears throat> they dug up a stone that, had the, that, that was the mark of that sign, and here's what it said. It said, now think about this now, right there, You've got all of that area where the Gentiles could be, and here's what this sign said. No man of another race is to proceed within the partition and enclosing wall. Anyone arrested there will have himself to blame for the penalty of death, which will be imposed as a consequence. So that's the wall that divided the Gentiles from the Jews. And so they were a long way off. And Paul's talking a little metaphorically in, uh, in Ephesians 2, but he's, he's referencing that wall that separated them in the temple. And he says, but you were brought inside by the sacrificial death of Christ. So jump it back into verse 14. 
He says, for he himself, who's the he? Christ. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both. Both who? Both Jews and Gentiles in the context that this was written. So he says, Christ is our peace, who has made us both one. He's taken the Jew and the Gentile, and he's made us one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. He takes both and creates one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus reconciles and he brings peace. And if you're having conflict today with anybody, whether it is at home or it's at work or it's in the neighborhood or it's in the church or it's out in the world somewhere, he is the way of peace. Paul says he is the way of peace. He is the origin of peace. Verse 14 says he made both one. It's like he's creating a new ethnicity that will ultimately be called a Christian. He's taken this Jew and Gentile and saying there is no such thing. There is only one. I'm making, taking both and making one new man, and that new man is going to be called a Christian. So, so for Paul, true peace is oneness. It's oneness. It's not just the ending of hostility. It's not just the absence of conflict. It goes way, like way deeper than that, way further than that. It means it is being one, and that is really important for us to understand, get our arms around, because anything other than that talking about peace is just superficial, and you're just kind of scratching the surface. Is it peace? Is it peace, y'all, when a husband and a wife agree not to divorce for the sake of the children, but then the house is still rolling down the road in coldness and divisiveness and hatred, and, and there's no harmony and, there, and there's no joy? And that, well, that may be peace in the way we may call peace, but that's not peace by God's definition. Is it peace when two friends that haven't spoken to each other for some time finally decide to agree to disagree? I kind of can't stand that language. They agree to disagree and to speak maybe civilly to each other, but they don't hang out with each other anymore. They don't seek each other's company and so is that peace? Not according to God's definition. I don't think it is. When a church is checking boxes and it's got all its programs and it's got all its stuff that is going on, but it's filled with division and conflict and coldness and festering resentment, is that a peaceful church? Not according to, to this definition, it's not. Peace is oneness. Peace is, uh, is harmony. It is sharing mutual enjoyment. It's authentic fellowship. It's being one. Anything else is superficial, temporary, unsatisfactory, and at the end of the day, it ultimately is going to fail. It is not peace to just agree not to fight. And we all probably kind of know that or feel that a little bit inside. Invariably, just agreeing not to fight will result at, at some point or the other in another outbreak. And the nastiness gets all drug up all over the place again. That's why um, what we would call peace among nations is fleeting because it really isn't peace. It's not oneness in any sense of the word. It's not oneness. It is only really being wore out with warfare. 
and, and maybe an agreement to stop for a while until both sides can recoup and rearm, and then it breaks out all over again because it, nothing's ever settled. I hope that makes sense. And, you know, God, he's not interested in that. He's not interested in that superficial kind of fake peace. And so Paul tells us in this passage, he kind of gives us the, the secret of peace. And he says the secret of this, um, of this oneness is, is a person. He says he is our peace. And when Jesus makes peace between people or between nations or between groups, any kind of groups, it's going to be satisfying, it's going to be permanent, and it's going to be authentic and genuine and real. And so what Paul is saying is that in order for us, anybody, to live at peace, in order for you to live at peace, you got to have peace. You individually have got to have peace. And the problem is that most of us, we want to start we want to start cleaning up only the results of the conflict. And God never starts there. He starts with a person. He says peace is a person. And in order for you to live at peace with somebody else, you've got to first make peace with the person of Christ. If you have his peace, if he is living inside of you and you have his peace, then you can affect the conflict that is around you. So the place to start for any of us is to settle any problem between you and the Lord. That is always, always, always the place to start. And there are times people come to me and probably come to you, um, and they're, they're in the middle of some turmoil, some conflict, some discouragement, whatever it is, and they may be all of those things, and they may be just ticked and angry and just absolutely mad. And sometimes... When that happens, they'll tell me, and you probably experienced this, they'll tell me all this laundry list of all the horrible things the other person has done and all the reasons, a laundry list, y'all, of reasons that they're justified in being so mad and feeling so mistreated. And sometimes I, I got to say to them, you definitely, you got a problem, but you really probably got two problems, and the one that you haven't mentioned is the one that I think we need to start with, and then we'll, we'll start talking about what my thoughts may be on the root issue of whatever it is, and that is that the foundational problem is they themselves don't have any peace. They're not at peace. They're upset, and they're angry, and they're discouraged, and they're emotionally distraught, and they're just flat out mad, and that lack of peace becomes the backdrop that colors everything. That is the lens that they look at all of life through. We, we would probably call it, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed every day, but it colors every relationship. It colors every event in their life is looked at through that lens. They can't see anything straight. There's nothing that seems to be in balance. Perspective is all jacked up and distorted. Everything gets out of focus, and it is impossible, y'all. It is absolutely impossible to solve a problem until you find peace. And I'm going to ask you, do you today, don't raise your hand, but do you today find yourself sitting there and you, you, you're mad? And you may not be spitting mad, but you're angry or discouraged. The bottom line is you have no peace. You have no peace. Y'all, you see it all over social media, everywhere you see it. 
you see somebody post, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. John 3.16, this cool meme trying to get likes. The very next post is the most hateful, venomous, cussing, tirade rant from the same person that just posted all the I love Jesus. I'd rather you not post anything. Y'all, I saw this, this right here. A friend of mine posted this on um, Tuesday afternoon. Read that. How true is that? You say stuff in, on Facebook and Instagram that if we backed up 25, year, 25 years and you were in the schoolyard, you'd have left with a busted eye. Stop doing that. Encourage your friends. Stop doing it. It is so bad, and everybody in this room has seen it. All of you probably have friends that do it. It, it would just be... It's like the old clichéest thing in the world that all of our mamas said to us, that if you ain't got nothing nice to say, just don't say anything. It is so true. I go, go way down that rabbit trail. Get, get back to Ephesians. Get back to... How true is that, though? Tell the truth. Um, here's the deal, though. The promise of God to Christians is that He is our peace. And once attitudes change and hearts can settle a little bit and hearts can begin to change and once you can figure out a way to put whatever issue there is to dump that, to put that into God's hands and you see that he becomes, at least begins to become active in whatever it is and your, your own heart changes a little bit and becomes a little more at peace, you can understand, at least begin to understand what is happening and, and apply some remedies to whatever the situation is. So let's look at this process of peace that Paul is talking about. And he says there's three things I think that have to happen, Paul says, three things that I think that have to happen to create this oneness that we're talking about. And this is what Christ can do, and this is the way that he does it. Look at verse 14. First, he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The hostility has got to go. The hostility, and it's probably a mindset too, but the hostility has got to go first. And he says, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And so that's how he breaks down the wall, and we're going to see that in a second. And then second, he says this, that he might create in himself one new man. We talked about that a second ago. One new, and I'm going to use the word ethnicity again. He creates one new um, identity, one new ethnicity that will be called the Christian in place of the two, so making peace. And then third, uh, he says, and might reconcile us both, both Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby do all that, thereby killing the hostility. So if you remember, in context, Paul is talking about crushing this intense conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles of his day. And he says the first thing that Jesus did was to break down the dividing wall of hostility. So number one is he wrecks walls. That's in your worship guide. You just got three little bullets today. The first one is he wrecks, I think it's three, he wrecks walls. And Paul is referring, y'all, to that wall in the temple that we saw a minute ago. Here it is again. Keep in mind, do we have a slide of the temple next? Yeah. So that's the wall. That's shooting in on what we looked at. That's the wall and Paul knew the temple. Y'all, he'd been there a thousand times. His parents sent him to Jerusalem as a kid from Tarsus, and he was trained under the greatest rabbis that ever lived. He'd been in that temple. He knew that temple, and that is what he was referring to. 
And so now this wall, it's just a symbol because actually it wasn't physically destroyed for some few years after Ephesians was written in A.D. 70 when, when uh, Rome came in and ransacked Jerusalem, the walls and the temple were destroyed. But Paul says the hostility that it represented was wrecked in Christ, destroyed, knocked down by Christ. Look, the, 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 the real truth, maybe the simple truth, is that division is a wall between two sides. And most of us are too young to remember this. Even I am too young to remember this. But in the 60s, the Berlin Wall was erected um, to, by the communists in East Germany to prevent East Germans from uniting with West Germans. And that's, what, that's part of the Berlin Wall. And history tells us that this was not some innocent little chicken wire thing. Y'all, it wasn't. I worked with a lady for 18 years who, who climbed, escaped in the early 70s, escaped from East Berlin, climbed the wall, didn't die, obviously, because I worked with her. But I remember working with her and her talking about, about that. Anyway, people were killed trying to, to get over that wall. That wall separated friends from fr- friends and family. That division was misery and death and despair. And the world kind of just accepted it like it would always be that way but God had another plan and the communist uh, world uh, was turned upside down as people in communist countries were kind of swept over in a in a wave of global nationalism and a and a true yearning for freedom and that in that seemingly invincible Berlin Wall was taken down in 1989 and that wall had no it had no power. It had no power against the forces of unity and freedom. Any dividing wall that we have in our lives, that you have with another person, that you have with another group of people, can, none of that can withstand the force of unity and true freedom that is found in Christ. There are walls like that among us. There, there, just, there, there just are. There are walls in homes like that and the hostility and the, the, the hatred and the defiance and the suspicion and the distrust between husbands and wives or between um, brothers and sisters and parents and children and neighbors and friends between people in our church. Walls of hostility, they rise up and we feel the anger and we feel the hostility and we feel this deep-seated resentment and the bitterness and we say, It's no use. There's just nothing that we can do about it. But Paul says that Jesus Christ wrecks the walls. He destroys them. If that is the wall, you just think, I don't care what it is, political, racial, ethnic, male, female, whatever. He just, he just, I've been wanting to do that like all day. He just, he just, he wrecks the walls. And, And when you think about, Something you got with somebody else, envision Christ, envision a, a physical barrier, and the cross destroys that physical barrier. And so he says, Paul tells us, how does he do it? He says, by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances. That is the way. It is the law that creates the hostility, that makes the hostility. Um, 
the law is what led us to understand our sin, right? The law is not evil. The law led me personally to understand my sinfulness. But Paul said if you remove the slavery to that law, you'll end that hostility. So what creates it? I think that a, I think that a self-righteous demand, a self-righteous demand made on somebody, a, a, a demand that I make on you without any admission of guilt on me, a self-righteous demand that's made on somebody without any admission of guilt on the person making the demand, Y'all, that's one-sided justice. It's a holier-than-thou insistence. That is what creates hostility. And the Jews despised the Gentiles because they considered themselves better than the Gentiles. They were condescending in everything they said. They looked down at them. They, They would say, we have the law of Moses. We, the Jews, we have the law of Moses. The law is right and the law is true and the law and the, the law reflects the very character of God and he gave it to us, not you. If he'd have wanted to give it to you, he'd have given it to you, but he didn't. He gave it to us and we are holier than you are. Happens all the time today. The holy rollers want to hold their Bible and post, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, and then some nasty, hateful thing. It, it, it ain't right. And in their, in their blindness and in, in this um, self-righteous hypocrisy, they thought they were keeping the law because they were not doing some of the external, outward acts that the law prohibited. But Jesus said on the inside, they're a whitewashed tomb. Does that make sense? On the surface, they look clean. But on the inside, they're filthy. And so they hated and they despised the Gentiles because they thought they were superior. Now, the Gentiles ain't all innocent neither. They, on the other hand, hated the Jews because they accused them of and they knew that they lived in a little bit of this self-righteous hypocrisy. But now that you had the Gentiles in this part of the world outnumbering the Jews, they began to look down on them in a condescending way because they had the majority. They had a super majority, so they looked down on them. So there was this intense hostility between these two groups And Jesus' solution is to fulfill the law. Remove that as a barrier. Remove that from the picture and help them to see, think about this now, help them to see that the law judges both alike. If you you can do that, if you can do that, you can end the hostility. Paul put them both on the same level. Remember, Paul's a Jew now. Paul's a Jew. So he's looking at this from both sides. Anyway, he says, put them on the same level. Let them both understand that they need grace, desperately in need of grace, desperately in need of forgiveness, and you can remove the hostility. Look at the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus is confronted with a woman that's caught in adultery. The text says she's caught in adultery. She is drugged before him, and they're ultimately trying to trick Jesus, but this woman is drugged before uh, Jesus by this crowd of self-righteous Pharisees who say that she's caught in the very act. Okay, that's what the text says. They never mentioned the man, but if she was caught in the very act, there had to be a dude there. But he never mentions this man. He somehow got away. And the law, they say, the Pharisees, the law, they say, condemns her that she must die because she is guilty. And what does Jesus do? He can't deny the law. The law is the law. He knew the law, right? He knew the law. 
and he, can't, he couldn't deny that law, what does he do? He bends over and he starts writing in the sand with his finger. And we don't know what he wrote because the text doesn't tell us what he wrote. But I can envision my brain goes in all kind of crazy places. I can envision that he looks up at the chief accuser guy, Pharisee dude, and he writes down, you better look in the mirror, bruh. I can only imagine that he said something like that. We don't know what he wrote. Whatever it is he wrote, we know that those men began to be convicted. They began to have feelings of, of guilt. And beginning with the oldest, John says, beginning with the oldest, they, they found excuses to get away. Like one of them has an appointment and he goes away. One of them probably got a text message from his wife and said, you better get on home. And he, and he leaves. But one by one by one, they begin to disappear. And finally, all you have left is Jesus and this woman. And look what he says to her. Verse 9, he says, At this, those, uh, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus, uh, only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you yet? No one, sir, she said. And he says, Neither, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, what had he done? What had Jesus done in that narrative? He had simply applied the law to the, listen to this, to the judges as well as to the judged. That's all he did. He had brought them all under the same law. He had taken the judges and the judged and put them into the same bag and shook them all together like you'd shake up chicken before you fry it, and they all fell out with the same flower of guilt, all together under that same judgment. And when he did that, there was no accusation left. He asked her, did they condemn you? No, they didn't because there's no accusation left. And this is what Paul says that Jesus did with the law. He fulfilled the demands of the law in himself. And by doing that, he made it clear to both of them, the Jews and the Gentiles, that they both on their own, just like me and you, on our own are completely unacceptable to God. He showed them that the law had to be fulfilled. And when they saw this and they saw, kind of saw his perfect life, they knew that they were just as guilty, the Jews, just as guilty as the Gentiles. Paul argues this in Romans 2, 3, and 4, big time, that the Jews are no better than the Gentiles simply because they knew the Scripture. That's what they thought. We were born into this, and we know the Bible. They were beating them up over the head with the Scripture because they could quote the, I don't know, the whole book of Obadiah. They could just quote it all out. But Paul says you've got to be on equal footing, both Jew and Gentile, and both are in desperate need of a Savior. And so he provides them this common ground of forgiveness, and when that happens, there is no room left for hostility. Look, the world builds walls that divide. And by that I mean this. Satan, the deceiver, and his little punk demons every week have their little punk staff meetings, and they decide who it is that they're going to go out and hammer today. He's like, what can I break today? Who can I break today? Where can I go to create chaos and wreak havoc and division? Where, where can I do that? Because he creates, he erects 
false walls to create chaos and anarchy and fussing and fighting and division and arguing and confusion and hostility and anger and resentment. He causes church splits. He causes business splits. He causes friend splits. He causes marriage splits. He causes brother splits. He causes sister splits. He raises walls of racial division. He raises walls of of political division. He raises walls of ethnic division. He raises walls of religious division. He raises walls of denominational division so that the Methodists think they're better than the Baptists or the Baptists think they're better than this or that. It's the stupidest thing ever. But it's not God that does that. It's Satan that does that. He raises all these walls of division and Jesus wrecks every one of them. It is all a billion percent about Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says he made us both one, Jews and Gentiles. In the body of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. The Jew doesn't have to become a Gentile, and the Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew. So number two is there's a new person created. Look, Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And the same is true of any other division among men. Black folks don't have to become white folks, and white folks don't have to become black folks in the church. In that sense, the church is never to integrate. It is to make one new man, one new ethnicity, the believer. The believer. Both bring whatever it is to the table. Both both bring whatever cultural heritage to the table, but if you do that, you will find oneness and you will find fellowship and you will find union and you will find a beautiful relationship with each other in Christ. There's a sense of belonging to one another and a joy in that relationship and the same is true of the, of the poor and the rich. The poor don't have to become rich and the rich don't have to live like the poor. There can be different levels of standards of living, I guess, in the church, but a oneness and a joy and an appreciation of each other. The same is true between males and females. Uh, the female doesn't have to act like a male, and the, and the male doesn't have to act like a female. In the church, there's oneness. There's a, a, a new unity that is formed, and that unity cannot exist apart from the settling of hostility on the grounds of the peace that Jesus Christ provides. Did y'all get that? That hostility cannot be settled in any other way other than the peace that Christ provides. You've heard me say this so many times, that Jesus redeems broken things. Every division, every wall, every prejudice, every bias, Jesus reconciles. If we keep it about him, if we keep our eyes focused on him, if we keep our eyes fixed on him, a squirrel runs by, nope, I'm focused on Jesus. Another squirrel, nope, I'm focused on Christ. Y'all, it was a rainy day and a father and his daughter are, are at home. The father's hanging out with his daughter, little girl, six, seven years old, and she liked to do puzzles, and he gives her this, uh, he took a, a picture of the world, a map of the world, and he tore it into a bunch of pieces and he gave it to her and he said, you want to put this together like you would put together a, a, a puzzle. And the little girl agreed. Three minutes later, she walks back in and it's all t- put back together and it's taped together. And he was like, it looked like that. And he was like, how, 
Like, how did you in the world, you're kidding me, you did that that fast? And she says on the back of it was a He's not upside down, is he? No. She said on the back of it, it was a picture of Jesus, and I figured if I got him right, the whole world would just fall into place. Y'all, our world... Oh, that was cool. Oh. Here's, here's, a, here's a quote, man. Our worlds are in chaos because we are not focused on getting Jesus right first. Write that down. The world is that our worlds are in chaos because we're not focused on getting Jesus right first. We want to go to all kind of other places. Get him right first. So that's step two. Step three, and then we're going to be done. Verse 16 says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. In other words, is your third little bullet point. Ultimately, peace must be with God. A man or a woman, parents or children, husband, wife, wherever there is conflict, once the hostility has been removed, usually by removing some self-righteous hypocrisy or some self-righteous spirit, and you can begin to experience a little bit of a new unity in Christ, we all got to see each other, that each other is forgiven, that the same grace is for you that's for me. The same forgiveness is for you is for me. And we can see that there's no way in the world that you could be superior to me if we're all under the same uh, uh, grace and the same forgiveness. If there is any area where anybody, where somebody feels better than the other, when he says, um, well, I didn't need quite as much forgiveness as she did. Self-righteousness starts to come up. Or, or you know, it's like the line is chasing you and you just got to run a little faster than one other person, right? That, that's not the way it works. It's the same grace and it's the same forgiveness. But if they stand before God, the two, these two people, on the same level, on the same ground exactly, both needing the same forgiveness, then the hostility can end. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 16 that reconciliation through the cross is what kills the hostility. The blood of Christ on the cross is what brings all of that hostility to an end. And then Paul continues on in verse 17. He says, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to, to those who were near. He preached peace to those that are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both, both who? Jews and Gentiles. 2019, both who? Blacks and whites and Hispanics and Italian Americans and Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and this and that and blue people and green people. All of them, he says, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He said, you're all members of the household of God. You get saved, you're all a member of the household of God. He's telling them you're in the club now. You're part of the team. You're part of the tribe. You're, you're in the household of God. And then he tells us what it looks like. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the cornerstone holds the building together. Who's the cornerstone? Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. It says in verse 20, Christ himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Y'all remember in week one, we talked about the Trinity. We talked about the fact that all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are all hard at work for you. Hard from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been hard at work for you. Look at verse 18. You see a, you see a picture of the Trinity again in verse 18. Yeah. You see, it says, for through Him. Who is Him? Through Christ. Through the Son, we both have access in one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. We see an image again of the Trinity who is hard at work for every single one of y'all. And look, you, we talk, this is about you cannot handle any of this on your own. You cannot handle, I cannot handle any conflict, any hostility if I don't have peace myself. And if you don't, in the first place that you have to have peace is with the Lord. Because if you are not a believer, if you're not a believer, it is impossible. It is impossible to have peace if you are not a believer. You can live in conflict and you can fool yourself into thinking that you have peace, but you don't. You don't. You, 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 there are so many people, they wake up every day and they're just not happy. You know, they're just not joyful. And I'm not saying when you are a believer that life is a bed of roses and there's no problems ever. But you have joy because joy never ends. But you cannot do that apart from Christ. And so this first thing is to have peace with the Lord. And I want you to have peace with the Lord. The Lord wants you to have peace with Him. Well, how does that all happen? We repent and we believe. We repent of our sins, we turn, and we believe that the blood that was shed on that cross took care of my sins. That is it. It's simple. It is so simple. It's the most amazing thing in the world, but it is simple. Y'all bow your heads and close your eyes with me.